when Casey first um, talked to me about the possibility of me coming down and uh, the basis of a book that I just published, um, doing a retreat for you girls, my first answer right out of my heart, right in my head was, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. I'm just going to tell him no. But I didn't say that to Casey, of course, because I know Christianese well enough to know that you don't just say no. You said you say, okay, I'll, pr- I'll pray about that. <laughs> and I meant it. You know, I really did mean that I pray about it. But I had, was just coming off one of those really exhausting seasons of too many deadlines and just me going at a, face, a pace that was faster than I'm comfortable with for way too long, and is anybody, is anybody there right now in their lives where you just, okay, Isabel's hand is up in the air, where you just feel like you just think, okay, I can do this for a while, but this isn't sustainable. This is, this is too much. When can I jump off of this? And so that's right where I was. And all I could see in that moment was my own worn outness, just I want this train to stop Anybody there lately, any moms there understand what I'm talking about? Any of you? How many people, how many of you are moms? Okay, quite a few of you. So you're the ones, you know, you just, as soon as that baby is born, you start feeling it. And you really don't get over that feeling entirely. I'm sorry to tell you until they, gra- <laughs> they graduate college. And then you kind of relax just a little bit. But So I did. I intended to pray about and to remind God that I'm an introvert. I'm a writer. I'd rather just write you what I want to say than have to have to actually stand up and say it in front of you. So I was going to just remind God that I'm not funny. I'm not hilarious. I'm not loud. I'm really not a retreat speaker. But something happened when I began to pray about it. And that's what I just think is so amazing about God, how he leads us. Even we think we want to go in one direction, and he changes our minds. Because as I began to pray about it, I just felt uneasy, just a sense of unease of, am I really allowed? Is it okay for me to say no? And I had more and more the sense that by saying no to Casey, I would be saying no to something that God wanted for me and for the women of Collective. And so I said yes as soon as I started imagining the kind of people you are. Because I know something about church plant, people who go to a church plant. Because 12 years ago, my husband and son and I, our family started a church in Portland, Oregon. And I love anybody who would be a part of a church planter because they're my favorite kind of people because church planting people don't care about rules and about the way it's always been done and we have to do this again this year and this is the procedure and it has to be called this you just embrace adventure and all the messiness that is a part of starting something new so i started thinking okay but i get to be with church planting kind of people and I heard those whispers of invitation. Have you felt those whispers, that sense that God isn't making you do something? If you say no, you're not in disobedience, but that he's inviting you into something bigger than you are. And that's what I began to feel. And it's been really because over years and years of learning to listen to God, I've learned that God speaks. And that sometimes I even hear what he has to say, or maybe a better word would be that I sense what he is saying to me, what he's inviting me into. And I heard and I sensed God beckoning me to tell my story. So that's what I'm going to do tonight is just tell my story to you, to be faithful to a gift that God has given me of a story 
of a story that is so magnificent that I want to keep telling it to the end of my life. And that was months ago when I was wrestling with that months of rest and refreshment, of going at a pace that's restorative and life-giving for me. And I'm so glad I listened, and I'm so glad you did too, because as I've been praying for you over the last several weeks, just the sense that God is speaking, I don't know what he's going to be whispering to you, but I am anxiously sitting kind of at the front of my seat, waiting to see what he wants to do for all of us, for you and for me. Psalm 107, verse 2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. I love that verse because that's what our story, that kind of sums up everything about our story. Those who are redeemed of the Lord from the hand of the foe. And so tonight I want to tell you my story to share with you what God has done, what he is doing, in the hope that you will, first of all, more than anything else, that you will see and you will hear and you will realize again how great our Father is. This one who I think Isabel was praying that he calls us daughters. Maybe it was Christine who was saying that. This one who calls us his daughters, how great he is. And that what he's done for me, how he has turned a really hard story into a wonderful story, the best possible story of delight and awe, that that's what he wants to do for you as well. Because that's who he is, and that's what he does. And a few years ago, I, when I turned 50, and I felt like I was pretty much finished with my most, my first and foremost calling, the most important thing that I believe that God called me to do, and that is of raising four children who would love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I sensed, once again, I sensed God urging me to do two more things, two significant things, two things to do before I die, not a bucket list, but a task list. Because Ephesians 2.10 is one of my favorite verses, and it tells us that we are God's workmanship. You've heard it many times. But that also that we are given specific tasks, specific assignments that I believe that if I don't do my assignments, they're not going to get done in the kingdom, and the kingdom is going to be poorer because of it. John 9.4, Jesus says, all of us must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent me. Because there's little time left before the night falls and all work comes to an end. And I felt like he was leading me, maybe even pushing me to write my story. To write it for the next generation. For my children and for my children's children. Because sometimes there's something about getting a pen in your hand or getting behind a keyboard where you just feel like you can say more than you probably would say face to face. So... I, I've just felt this invitation, this urging to write my story for my grands, I call them, Jude and Moses and Sunday and Duke and Scarlet and now a little brand new Beatrice. And for any and all who need to know that our Savior still saves and rescues, that he hasn't stopped redeeming and, and fixing and patching us up and planting our feet on solid ground. He's not finished. He's not finished yet. And so I did. I wrote my story. And as you leave tonight, I think you're going to be getting each of you to get their copy of it. But someday when I die and my life gets summed up in just a few words on a tombstone, it's not going to say, here lies Diane Comer, mother of John Mark, or Matthew, Rebecca, or Elizabeth, wife of Phil, or grandma to Jude, 
writer of a blog, a writer of a book. I know exactly what words I want written on that stone. Diane Comer, 1959 to whenever, she delighted in God. Because that is my story, how God brought me to this place where my life is defined not by who I know, not by what I do, but by simply and honestly, authentically delighting in God, finding my delight in him. And I tell you my story in the hope that you can find your story, that place of God coming near, of him enticing you, even alluring you into intimacy with himself, where you get to a point where your name tag, your identity is not by what you do, who you know, what you've done, what you've accomplished, but simply by, by being his, all in for so that what he looks at you, he says of you, that one, she's all mine. She's completely mine. This is one who delights in me. So I'll launch right into my story and the way of more to talk about. I grew up in my earliest years when I was young in Europe, not, not here in the U.S. We moved to Europe when I was really young and back um, when I was in high school. And while we were living there, we kept hearing in the 70s about something called the Jesus Movement that was going back on back home in the States. And if any of you have ever lived overseas, you, you stay, you're part of that country, but you stay connected to the expat community, all the people who are living in a foreign country, not the country they're from. And we all, everybody kept hearing about this Jesus Movement thing. And I could not figure out what it was about until one day I picked up a Stars and Stripes newspaper all over the world on American um, Navy and Army bases. Um, a, a newspaper is published, an American newspaper called Stars and Stripes. It's been going forever. And we weren't military, but we could at certain times when the security was looser, we could get onto the bases. And this time I picked up this newspaper and there it was, front page, top of the fold, a picture of thousands and thousands of young people with their hands raised, and they were worshiping Jesus. And I looked at that picture, and a hunger right there began to form in my heart to know who is Jesus. I don't get it. I only knew the Jesus who hung in kind of a granite stonework on the front of these big cathedrals. I had no idea who they would be worshiping, closing their eyes and worshiping for. And I promised myself that when I get back home to the States, I'm going to find out what this Jesus is all about. Well, we came back to America when I was in high school and we stumbled upon this really great church. We weren't we didn't have a church background, but somehow we ended up at this church, and it was a lot like your church, like collective, because it, we were hearing the, the teaching every week, really bringing the gospel into a language that we could understand, that made sense to all of us and my family for the first time, and one by one, each of us gave our hearts to the Lord. Back in the day, you had to walk down the organ music playing, and you walked down in front of everybody. It was terrifying. If you really could get over your fear, you'd go into the room, and somebody would be praying with you there. And one by one, each of us did that in our family. And our family was just radically changed, just, just unbelievable night and day differences. But somewhere in there, I adopted the thinking, the theology made up by me, that if I would be a very good girl, 
And if I would just obey all the rules, I would figure out what all the rules are, and I would obey, obey all of them. Be very disciplined. That was high on my list. Then God would look at me with favor, and he would bless me. And by bless, basically, I thought that everything would go well with me, that I would live basically happily ever after. And I had my list of rules of what I thought a good Christian woman ought to look like and dress like and act like and be like. And I just made sure that I could check everything off my list. And it worked. seemed to me God did bless me. He gave me this tall, handsome, godly husband. Phil was just the catch of the church. And then God gave me one by one four beautiful, healthy children who I loved. And we had a lovely, beautiful little home near Santa Cruz up the coast a little ways with a view of Monterey Bay. And I felt like I had everything I ever wanted. This was the life that I craved. I had the life. And yet, when I was honest with myself, I was restless. I wasn't satisfied. I was even dissatisfied. I just wasn't as happy with all these blessings that I thought I wanted weren't giving me the satisfaction and the fulfillment that I thought that I ought to have. And that began to eat at me and bother me. And every morning I got up to do what I was supposed to do. I'd get up and I'd read my Bible. And I'd get out my list of prayer cards to make sure that I didn't forget anything, to make sure that God didn't forget anything. And I'd make my mental list of everything that I was supposed to do so that I could check it off, so that I would be a good girl, so that God would bless me. And every morning I woke up dreading the day ahead. Why wasn't I fulfilled? Why was I so dissatisfied? What was wrong with me? And I think... In a group this size, that some of you are thinking that very same thing. And you're lambasting yourself inside where nobody knows because you think, I'm supposed to be happy, and I'm not. Why is it that I'm really not actually happy? Along about that time, God brought into my life a couple, two older women specifically, whose very lives, just being around them, made me see that I... They had something more than I had, and they made me long for more. They were really honestly content, happy, filled with joy with this kind of aura of beauty around them. And I got close enough to know to them to find out that this was like the real deal, like they woke up happy. And um, I wanted what they had. I wanted whatever it was that made them glow like that with this sort of inside beauty. Psalm 34 verse 5 describes the kind of person who says, looks to him and are radiant. These women were radiating with a beauty that I knew that I didn't have and I didn't know how to get and it was just this something more that I knew I was missing, something I craved. And then there was Kathy. Kathy sang in the choir at our church and she wasn't pretty, not in the way that we think of as beautiful. She'd had a really hard life. Her husband was in prison, and her oldest son was teetering right on the edge of of all of the boundaries. But every time that the choir would sing a song about the Savior or about a Redeemer or about the cross, there she'd be. Kathy would be. She was really small, so she'd stand in the front row. 
and down the crevices of her deeply lined face, tears would just begin to flow and just drip off her her face while she was singing with this beautiful glow on her face, and she would turn beautiful, just radiantly beautiful. And I'd look at Kathy, and I'd think, what is Kathy crying about? I don't get it. I wanted that kind of tenderness that made Kathy cry at the, at the cross. I wanted to experience God the way I knew that Kathy was right then and in that moment experiencing him. I tried everything to chase those feelings of discontent away. Trying harder didn't work. Being more disciplined didn't work. Reading books about, I'm an introvert, I read books about trying harder and being a disciplined, didn't do any good at all. And I didn't dare tell anybody the truth about me. I just kept it all inside. And sometimes I blamed others very conveniently is the kind of way of women. Maybe it was Phil's fault, my husband. Maybe it's him. Maybe he's too busy. And if he wasn't so busy, then, then I would be satisfied. Maybe it was my children's fault. Maybe I just had too many and I should have stopped at the, you know, us four and no more. Maybe it was just the fixer-upper house that we lived in that we didn't have enough money or enough time to fix up. Something was just leaving me aching, and so I began to pray. And you don't know what else to do, and you can't really talk to anybody because the pastor's wife doesn't go around saying that she's honestly not that happy with everything that is supposed to make everybody happy. So I began to pray, and I asked God to do whatever he needed to do to make me have that kind of intimacy with himself that I saw in Kathy and these two other women, whatever he needed to do to give me that satisfaction that was be real, that I saw in just a few. I didn't see it in very many, but in just a few. I asked him to give me the kind of intimacy that Kathy had that would make her weep at the cross. And now I want to pause right here and just tell you very clearly, I do not believe that God heard my prayers and just said, "Hmm, okay, she's the one who prayed it. I'm just going to zap her. I'm going to just zap Diane with something hard so she stops trying so hard to be good and disgustingly perfect all the time. I'm just going to mess her life up a little bit so that she finally gets this idea of grace. We've all heard it said, be careful what you pray for. I just want to say, no, don't ever be careful what you pray for. The psalmist said that he poured out his heart to God, unedited, unashamed of what was really going on inside of him. Total honesty. He is your father. He gives you good gifts the way a good father gives his child good gifts. He loves you. He values you. He even likes you. You know, it's one thing to know that God loves you because he's supposed to love us. But the idea that he actually likes you, that he wants to be with you, you know, there are some times that I don't even want to be with me, and it's a little hard to escape yourself. He wants to be with you. Well, back to my story. So I just had my third child, Elizabeth. Do any of you know Elizabeth Moser from Reality LA? I know you do, Isabel. Okay, some of you know her. I just had her. She was my third baby, just the sweetest, snuggliest baby you can imagine. 
I was in that little bit of a glow that you have in the following weeks after having a baby, of just holding this life in your hands. It's such an amazing time. Elizabeth was just a newborn. My oldest son, John Mark, who's also taught at Reality, was five, and Rebecca was about two and a half. And my ears seemed plugged, just sort of muffled like they were full of cotton or something. I thought, well, I'd gotten a light case of pneumonia when I was pregnant. I thought, okay, I must have water on the ear. That's what it is. So I made an appointment with an ear specialist so that I could get a pill or something to unmuffle my ears. I just get in there really quick. I had three little ones. I pick up a prescription and I go home so I could just get on with my work. But I was there for hours and hours in the doctor's office listening to pings and whistles and long silences with the audiologist marking on her chart. And the doctor, when he was done through you know, a long, long time of all sorts of tests, sat me down in his office. I'd never been in an actual doctor's office before, you know, with the desk and the, the leather furniture and all that. I knew this was not good, that he was bringing me in there. And he sat behind his desk, and he wouldn't look at me. He just kept his head down, staring at his papers, putting him in a perfect pile in the middle of his desk, completely detached. And after a long pause, he said to me, young lady, you have a major hearing loss. I'll order some more tests, but I don't think anybody's going to be able to do anything about this. You really ought to be getting hearing aids right away. And by the way, it's probably going to get much, much worse. All I heard was the dreadful words, hearing aids. No way. Hearing aids. I do not need hearing aids. Hearing aids are for old men. My grandpa wore those ugly, big, dangly, kind of flesh-toned hearing aids, and he still couldn't hear a word that I said. (laughs) And I was 26 years old. I went home, and I cried in Phil's arms, and then I did what I'd always done when hard things happened in my life. I stuffed it deep down inside, and I plastered a fake smile on my face. And some of you do that very same thing, and it doesn't work, does it? Not for long, not for the hard things, not for the real stuff. It's difficult to describe to another person what it is like to lose your hearing. At first, for me, it was the little things. I couldn't hear the telephone ringing if I was in another part of the house. Back then, we had these things on walls, a telephone. <laughs> They're vintage. Now. You actually can find them in vintage, especially the rotary ones, you know, that went around like that. I remember when the push-button ones first came out, that was just so cutting-edge to finally get to the point where we could have a push-button phone. When I finally did hear it ring, I could hardly ever tell who it was because all voices began to, the first thing I noticed was all voices beginning to sound exactly the same to me. I couldn't tell the difference between Lynn and Kim in the gym. One day, I carried on the most confusing conversation for about 10 minutes on the phone um, with, that I thought was Stacy only to find out several minutes into my confusion that I was talking to somebody named Lucy, a completely different person. I just came to hate that phone. Being hearing impaired involves a lot of frustration and embarrassment. In fact, the whole deaf world is a very angry world. It's so isolating to be left out. 
so frustrating to want to talk to someone, to want to get to know someone, but to be afraid to start a conversation that I was unlikely to be able to understand. Or worse, to see that dread look on somebody's face that makes me know that I didn't understand, and so I said the wrong thing. But it was at home that the pain was the greatest, when my baby Elizabeth cried in the night and I couldn't hear her. What kind of mama cannot hear her child call out for her in the night? When my Becca, who was the cutest little toddler you ever saw, have seen with those little dimples on her elbows and on her hands, and she'd wrap those arms around my neck and whisper sweet secrets that I could not hear. Or when John Mark, my sweet introverted son, on his first trip away from home, big deal for him, scary for him to go to camp for the week. And he chattered uncharacteristically all the way home, telling me all about camp. And I hadn't a clue what he said. No idea. Grief. The pain. Nothing else really matters. I just wanted to hear my children. My, the people who are closest in my life, how could I not hear them? I wanted to be involved in their lives. I wanted to know their hearts. I was the first in my family to become a follower of Jesus. And I thought, how in the world am I going to raise these children up to be followers of Jesus if they can't even talk to me? I pictured them as teenagers sitting on the side of my bed late at night just telling me everything. I wanted so much to be that kind of mom, the kind of mom that would bear their secrets and their burdens, the kind of mom would be the first person to cheer for them when something went well. Would they still talk to me? How could they? And what about Phil? Would he just grow distant? Would I lose him? Phil is one of those people, ironically, who thinks out loud. You know those external processors? He actually forms opinion. And one of my sons is the same. My youngest son, Matt, is the same. I I homeschooled him for the first couple of years. I was teaching him how to read. And I still to this day cannot figure out how he ever kept his mouth closed long enough to learn how to read. Somehow he learned how to read while he was talking the whole way. I just thought, what? how can I be the wife? How can I be the mother if what the doctor is telling me is true if I am losing my hearing for good and there's nothing they can do about it? I was terrified about thinking of a life without sound. And I began to sink into a deep, dark depression. I'd never experienced depression before. Oh, just like anybody else, a little low now and then. But this was darkness, just even like almost like I could see darkness. I couldn't just pull out of it. I couldn't do the things that we were supposed to do, the 12 steps to lead out of depression. I couldn't just cheer up because I was overwhelmed with fear, with anger, and most of all with self-pity. As I went every few months and back to the doctor and every few months a huge drop in my hearing, I felt like God had turned his back on me. How could he do this to me? I had no doubt whatsoever. It took no faith for me to believe that God could heal me. He made my ears. Of course. So why wouldn't he? I had been such a good girl. I tried so hard. I was exhausted, to tell the truth, from trying so hard. 
I could feel my world slipping away, and it was his fault. Where was this blessing that he had promised that I was so sure that me being the good girl following the rules would guarantee? Let me warn you, as one has been there, just how dangerous the sin of self-pity really is. I'd never, ever heard anybody express self-pity as sin. It took me months to figure out really what was at the root of my problem, but I believe that self-pity is a sin that many of us women are prone to. It's one that a temptation that has worked for many of us for years and years. And it's not just me. I see it in characters in the Bible too. But you do not want to go there. Just trust me. This is not something cute to be laughed about. It's like digging yourself into a pit that you cannot climb out of. And it's a tool I believe that the enemy has been using for centuries to defeat you and me because it works so well. About that time, Phil began to grow more and more alarmed as he saw me withdrawing from everybody around me. And he tried so hard to cheer me up, you know. He'd just say those kind of blundering things like, Come on, die. You're not dying or anything. I mean, what's a little hearing? We're fine. You're okay. And that didn't always go over so, so well with me. We might have had a few words over that one. But mostly I just wrapped myself in a cloak of self-pity and shut everyone out. I shuddered to think and to admit to you now that I hated God raged against God. Me, the perfect little pastor's wife who followed all the rules, I'd read my Bible and boil with fury, reading all my anger into every one of the stories. God is mean. God is not fair. God is capricious. I went to church, and inside, where no one could see, I just railed against him. I cried and worshipped that they were tears of so much fury. How could you? How could you say that you love me and you could could heal me and you don't? I spewed all my hatred on him. And I hear people say commonly now that it's okay to be angry at at God. Part of me wants to agree because I faked it for so long and I now know how God values honesty and truth. But I'm not so sure that it's actually really okay to be angry at God. I think I was in a very dangerous place right now, that I was right on the brink of rebellion and all the awful ugliness that gets invited into our lives in the wake of a rebellion like that. All those irrevocable choices that we make, lashing out in that kind of simmering, seething anger. But does God ever turn his back on us? He should. To this day, I think I, I would have turned my back on me. But he doesn't. Does he ever say, enough, I'm done with you? No, never. Second Timothy 2.13, I love, I cling to. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. You and I cannot do anything to make him reject us. Do you believe that? I'm not sure I believed that. No sin is so bad. No thought is so wicked. No person can be so vile as to turn God away. The Savior, when he died for us, he didn't do it when we all dressed up, our hair done, and makeup in place. He hung there seeing the real me, not the me that I pretend to be. He loved the whole package just as I am, and every once in a while, 
Given just the right circumstances and just the right pressures, we get a terrifying glimpse of who we really are apart from him. Well, one Sunday after church, Phil's not-so-subtle urging, we decided that my hearing was just spiraling down, and the doctors were saying, you have about two years' worth of being able to understand speech at this rate. We asked the elders of our church to pray for me for healing from this terrible thing. You know, there's a verse in James 5:14 that says, Is any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So here I am raging inside. Phil's starting to get scared. And he makes this suggestion, and I thought, okay, I'll do that. Maybe he'll listen to these men. Maybe this is just my last chance. I'll give him one more chance. He doesn't seem to be willing to listen to me. Maybe he'll heal me if, I, if they ask. And these men were my friends. So here I am hiding all this seething anger pretty hard to hide from your friends. And they prayed over me like I have never heard before. They prayed that God would heal me. That's all I came. I came not telling them what was happening inside of me. I told them I came only asking for them to ask God to heal me. And they prayed. They believed that God would heal me. They believed that he could, that he would. They wept. As they, they felt the burden of my growing deafness, they laughed at what they believed of the goodness of God. And as they prayed, something happened. So hard for me to even be able to say clearly what it was. But first I have to tell you, I am no wild and raging sensationalist. Steady is my middle name. I'm just always kind of within the same range. But I felt, or or I saw, or it looked as though the sun had broken out from behind a thick black cloud. Do you know what that is like when the sky gets all stormy and there's like a hole in the clouds and you see just the slant of the sun, you see those rays going through? I felt like I saw that so blindingly bright. And 1 Timothy 6.16, I later read, says that God dwells in unapproachable light. And I really believe he let me, in that moment, just see a glimpse of that light. And I heard these simple words, just, I didn't even really know that God would speak to us, okay? I didn't even think that he would ever really speak to me. I believe that he spoke through, through the word, totally. But I didn't know that he would speak to me. And this is what I heard. Two words and my name. It's okay, Diane. It's okay. It's okay, Diane. Over and over and over again, I heard him say, it's okay, and was not, not all sweet and soft, like a mama saying, oh, darling, it's okay, but more like my dad. I remember my dad, I had a great dad, a really good father. And I remember once when I was young and I was crossing the street and I was a really fear-prone kind of little girl and I saw a car coming and it looked close to me so I just froze. You know, you've all seen kids do it. You just froze in panic. I, I didn't know whether to go back. I didn't know where to go forward. And my dad grabbed me roughly, pulled me to the other side of the street to save me from myself. That kind of it's okay that kind of rescue. And I knew in that moment, I absolutely knew with unquestionable knowing that he had said no to the healing, that he had a gift for me 
in this affliction, a treasure, something I needed, something that I wanted more than I wanted to hear, that he would make it okay, that I had to trust him. Somehow, in some way, I couldn't understand that I still don't understand. Right in that moment, it was okay. Like a huge burden lifted off my shoulders, it was okay. Just like that, supernaturally. He just picked me up out of this pit I had dug myself into and set my feet on solid rock. I will never be the same. I am not the same person because he healed me. Not my ears, but deep down broken, entitled parts of me that I didn't even know needed healing. Now I know why he died for me. Now I get why Kathy cried at the cross. Because I got that glimpse of who I really am apart from my Savior. I am not and never will be a good girl. I was just fooling myself to think that somehow I could be. But I cling to him like I never did before because I know I need him. I love Deuteronomy 13.4. It says, serve only the Lord your God and fear him alone. Obey his commands. Listen to his voice and cling to him. I got up the next morning and my whole world was different. I didn't really have a basis to be able to, a vocabulary to be able to be describing what had happened to me. But nothing had changed on the outside of my life, and everything had changed inside of me. I opened my Bible, and for the very first time, it wasn't about discipline. It wasn't about following the rules. In fact, I got up as early, and that's when I started a habit of getting up as early as I could to make sure that I would have lots of time before the kids got up and needed stuff because I started to crave his word. It wasn't about me being a good Christian girl who gets up to have her devotions every day because I should because it was instead it was God speaking to me in his words words jumping off the page words that were comfort a friendship a deep sense of knowing and being known and correction but the kind of correction that feels so good like coming clean like being set free the truest truth is that he has given me an incredible gift in the loss of my hearing and I am, um, I'll keep going on to say, uh, to tell you a little bit more about it. But the main, excuse me for just getting rattled there just a minute, because I did, I did go completely deaf. I've been, I absolutely hear, my natural ears hear absolutely nothing. But I hear him, I hear his voice, and it's clear. The harder it became for me to hear the people I loved, the people around me, the easier it became for me to distinguish and to hear this voice of my Savior. It's really nothing mystical or or especially prophetic, just everyday stuff that a friend and, and your friend and your lover will speak to you. More recently, it seems to be that he keeps beginning, that he's begun me on kind of a journey of, learning who to pray for and how to pray for them, which is just so fun, like as if I'm participating in something really important that I know almost nothing about, as if his whispers in my ears and my praying specifically for people that I care about, as if, as if it matters to him. 
as if what matters to me matters to him. And then after a while, just without even trying, what matters to him matters to me. God has become my friend. And I was telling this story to a friend of mine once, and, and she said, just blurted out, you are so lucky, Diane. I had to sit with that for a minute. Really? I mean, I went deaf. I'm so lucky. She's right. I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I have no doubt about it. Uh, The very next morning, after the elders prayed, and God spoke to me in his word out of Psalm 40, and it's become my song, where David said, I waited patiently, it could be called intently, for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet on a rock, making my footsteps firm. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and trust in the Lord. Down to verse 6 is what I love. My ears thou hast opened. And he has. He has opened my ears to hear him, to know him in a way that I never could have before. But my story doesn't end there. My hearing continued to feel over the next several years. It slowed way down. So that in itself was a huge answer to prayer because my kids were so young. To lose it so young while they weren't yet able to adapt terrified me. Slow way down, but I wore the biggest, ugliest hearing aids that they made. They call them deaf aids for people who are so far gone, and they're just giant. My world became smaller and smaller around me as sounds faded, and my ability to respond to people and function diminished. It was hard. So hard to function in a world without being able to understand Um, to hear noise and not know where the noise was coming from from, or what the noise meant. I'm not going to pretend that I like that. I'm done pretending. There is a grieving that never really goes away that anybody who has a chronic illness or anything like that or, or just a hurt that they carry with them, there is a grieving that never really goes away. I lost something that God designed for me to have. This wasn't the plan. This happened right in our DNA at the fall. The choices that were made right then has affected my DNA, many people's DNA. But now in my grieving, he grieves with me, and there's a fellowship of suffering with him that is sweet. A few years ago, I qualified for what is now called um, a cochlear implant. Has anybody ever heard of a cochlear implant? Okay, therefore, it's a surgery that is basically for anybody who has lost... um, all their hearing and both ears, and if it's nerve-related. We have this, um, we have a nerve behind our ear called the cochlear nerve that basically takes all the mechanical, mechanical sounds come in through our ear. My ear is perfectly formed, and it processes through my ear, and then it hurt, hits this cochlear nerve where it converts the mechanical sound into electrical pulse that goes up the eighth bundle of nerves to your to your brain, and voila, you hear. You Actually, we hear with our brains, not with our ears. And so the cochlear implant is like they put a little, this little probe, they, they implant around the cochlear nerve, and, they, and it has um, little connecting points that they, with the computer, then try and figure out and tweak to give you much as much sound as possible. It sounds normal to me because your brain is so fabulous that our brains, after about two years of rehabilitating, your brain begins to hear sounds that it remembers from long ago. So people who are born deaf, 
um, if they don't get the cochlear when they're very, very young, don't ever get to be able to connect with speech and sound in the same way. But because I had hearing until I was 26, that was probably perfectly normal all my life. Um, it worked remarkably well with me. Um, it's essential, essentially, it's a computer, so it's not perfect. It doesn't work always great. I, music is the biggest thing that I miss. I just, nobody, and this is something for us to worship God about. No scientists have been able to, they're still clueless to figure out how our ears process music. Because it's completely different than we process speech. They're getting speech down really well with these. But every cochlear implant user pretty much complains that music just sounds like maybe when your toddler gets into your pots and pans drawer. Pretty much a lot of clanging and, and confusion. I'm still deaf. When I take this little device off, and I do um, all the time, it's, uh, my world goes totally silent. I can't hear thunder or the smoke alarm, the doorbell, nothing. I burn a lot of dinners <laughs> from not hearing, but at least have an excuse. It's just so nice to blame it on it sometimes. <laughs> but with it on, I've entered the world of hearing once again. You have no idea what a relief that is for me. It's still hard work for me to hear. Sound just comes to you, but I have to go to the sound and identify what is that? Should I be worried? Is that something wrong going on? Or... Or, and, I, and some people act like Isabel's absolutely beautiful accent. This is how your brain does this. I've talked with Isabel at length before. So I got used to it. Your brain gets used to somebody's voice and even somebody's vocabulary. It's like a computer just stores that away. So this time, getting reacquainted with Isabel, instead of being frustrated that I can't understand with her accent, beautiful accent, my brain just leaps right back into relationship with Isabel. It's just so much to worship God about the way that he made us. Here's the truest truth. I thank God every single day for the gift of hearing that came to me in the suffering of not hearing. Because I now have an intimacy that the Savior has given to me in my weakness that I could never have even known about in my strength. It's his gift to me, and I know that now. In fact, so much so that one time, I, several years ago, I sat on, the, on a bench overlooking a beautiful lake high up in the Cascade Mountains that are in southern Oregon. And I was overlooking the lake, and I felt like I, felt like I heard him ask me, do you want it back? Just die. Do you want it back? My heart just froze. Do I want it back? Do I want it back? No. No. I do not want my hearing back. Not if it would mean losing this intimacy that has become such a strength inside of me. No, I don't really want my hearing back. And this evening, I'm going too long again, sorry about that, but I want to give, leave you with just two thoughts because my story is not really just about a woman losing her hearing too young. I hope my story is so much bigger than that because I think there are at least several points that apply to all of us. Because some of you, I know, I can see expressions on some of your faces. You're listening to my story right now, and you are in the middle of your, the hard part of your story. 
I have a, a friend who's a novelist. She's written, uh, I think, 13 novels so far. She's a really serious professional. And she says that story writers call those in their stories, essential to their story, call it the bleakest moment. That every really good novel has a bleakest moment. I would just want to remind some of you who are there that God is in the middle of your mess. I did not know that. Not really. I thought he just abandoned me and that the mess was there just for me to face all by myself. Do not define yourself by your bleakest moment. A lot of us get stuck there. And we write it on our name tag, and we actually, after a while, even begin to crave the attention that we get from it. But that is not who you are, not who God intended you to be. It's just a hard part of your story, a part that, if you let him, God can use to bring you to that place where you can listen to him. And that place, believe me, girls, is the only place that you will find that honest to goodness, I am satisfied sense of, of, of happiness. And people will say to us all the time, they say, well, it's not happiness that you want, it's really joy, because happiness is dependent on circumstances, and joy isn't. But you know what? Forget the definitions. I want to wake up happy in the morning. I've never met anybody else who just doesn't want the exact same thing. I want to wake up looking forward to my life. I want to live my life looking forward to my life. And he is the only one. I have a great husband. I mean, he's really off the charts good. He's romantic. He loves me. He thinks I'm beautiful whether I was nine months pregnant or as my wrinkles get, you know, I have to paint them inside the wrinkles. He thinks I'm beautiful. I have what you girls want. And he cannot satisfy me. He can't. He, he, I can't wake up happy just because I have a great husband who loves me and gets me and knows me and, and is faithful to me. Number two, the second thing I want you to know is that you remind you of what you know. You have a story. And your story is probably the thing more than anything else that God will use to bring his story into your world. He wants you to use your story. My story is not the same as your story. Your story is not the same as mine. But God wants to use your story, and he wants to use my story. In John chapter 4, there's a story that we all know of the Samaritan woman. After encountering Jesus, she goes rushing back into her hometown to tell everyone who will listen the story of, of God coming to talk to her. And she insists that they all come back with her and hear for themselves what this man has to say. And verse 39 says, many believed because of the word of the woman. I love that. She's just telling her story, just bringing them into her story. And verse 40, they say, the townspeople say, who had, who had obviously not been, had been cruel to her. They say to the woman, now we know that this man really is the savior of the world. That's what your story does. Your story puts flesh and blood on a God who, especially in our culture, is sometimes so hard to connect with, hard to feel and to believe, hard to grasp. So 
I can't help but wonder, listening, as you listen to my story and you think about your story, what would happen if each and every one of us decided that we have to hear God? Not just hear what other people say about God. Not just know a ton of things, not just know a ton of theology about him. But what if we decided, every one of us, that we are going to hear God? Because we must. Because life isn't okay with us without hearing him. What if we decide, what would happen if we decided, each one of us, to say get up an hour earlier than we needed to in the morning to go after him? Maybe an hour is just impossible because you do have to sleep maybe a half an hour earlier, maybe 15 minutes earlier than we need to, just to listen. Not to cross something off the list that says you're a good, disciplined woman, but just to listen. What if we opened our Bibles and we read his words and we stopped to listen? You know, fill in any Bible study blanks, we just stop to listen. And we pray about what worries us, and we listen, and we say, I want to hear you, God. I don't think I'm getting it yet, but I want to hear you. Let me clarify what I mean by listening, because to hear in the Hebrew doesn't mean to just to hear. You know what a typical teenager will say, I had four of them, yeah, 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 mom, I heard you. (laughs) Knowing full well they have no idea what you just said. Have you ever been to the place where you say, nobody listens to me? Well, the Hebrew word is shema, and it means to listen with the intent to obey. That's what it means to listen to God. If you want to hear God, big part of that is listening with the intent to obey or shema. When we draw near, when we listen with that intent to obey, he begins to tell us what to do. He begins to tell us who he wants us to be. He begins to tell us what he wants us to say. Maybe in my case, sometimes it's more what he doesn't want me to say. So much more. He tells us who we are. More than anything else, I feel like in listening to God, I'm beginning to discover who I really am. Not who I tried to be for so much of my my life, but who I really am. What would happen if every morning we came to him and we said, here I am, Lord, I'm listening. I'm just intent to obey you. I don't know how to do this thing. I don't know what the formula is. I'm scared of no formulas. What if we just came to him every morning and we said, this is my time. We please speak to me. I'm listening. What if we came to him and we actually said to him, I'm listening while you write my story. And I want to be a hand, I want to have a hand in that. I want you to write the story that you want for me. I did, wish I could have rewritten my story. I wish I could tell you that I began to go deaf at 26, began to lose my hearing, but I was just so strong. I just knew they had the answer. I was just, this is such, I'm just such a strong woman. You would hate me and I would be lying to you. <laughs> Because the truth is, I have to tell you, I threw a terrible temper tantrum, almost lost everything that is most precious to me in my fit of rage. I just am this person that during the worship now, I just know how close I was. I look at my kids now, they all love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They're serving him. 
that God is using them. And I think I could have thrown it away in my anger. Some of you had moms who threw you away or dads who threw you away. I just look at that and I think that could, I was so close to doing whatever I needed to do to hurt God back because of what I thought he was doing to me. What if instead we say, I'm, I'm yours, so yielded, you can write my story, whatever you want in my story to you. So we just, would you in fact maybe stand with me and can we just pray?